Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 12th, 2017. This is Peter Soretta. Slash Film Daily is a podcast published every weekday on SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe on iTunes and all the popular podcast apps. On today's show, we're going to be looking at its huge box office. Will Ryan Johnson direct Star Wars Episode Nine? Mouse Guard the Movie? Wolverine and Swamp Thing co-creator Len Wein has died, and our first buzz from Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game. Uh, in the mailbag, we'll be talking about our collections. Uh, with Joining me today are Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And Slash Home writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? Guys, let's jump into the news. Uh, Stephen King's It came out this weekend and had a record-breaking box office. Jacob, why do you think this was such a huge success? Well, I guess before I answer that question, I want to give the listeners some numbers in case they haven't heard them. On Sunday, our own uh, Ethan Anderton, a.k.a. Uh, Bradford Oman, a.k.a. whatever you want to call him. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that later. <laughs> we will. But he reported uh, that the initial estimates for its box office haul were $117.2 million, which is an astonishing number, but they were also the incorrect numbers. They actually made, wait for it. One hundred and twenty-three point one million dollars. So the estimates were short by six by six million, which is makes an already enormous number even larger. But that, that's superhero movie numbers for a horror movie that costs thirty-five million dollars to make. An not just a, not movie, just, yeah, an R-rated horror movie is the. It's almost the two and a half hours long. It's one hundred thirty-five minutes long. And I guess to address your question quickly is that this is not just a Stephen King fan thing. This isn't even just a. Um, effective marketing thing even the trailers for it have been very good i think what maybe people aren't taking consideration talking about why this movie was a huge hit is that people my age literally grew up watching that 1990 miniseries which hasn't aged well it's not yeah. great it, uh, and i think 30 million people watched that when it aired on television and probably you know many million since yeah and like people like me grew up like watching it in vhs over and over again being terrified by it because it's if it plays like a Goosebumps story now. It's, it's, it's very hokey and kind of waters down the book in many ways. But I think that it has a cultural thumbprint that 
is much larger and much deeper than a lot of us were expecting. This is these numbers are incredible. I mean, and the thing about horror in general, when you were talking about horror in the box office, is horror tends to be front loaded. It tends to make a lot of money up front and very quickly drop off next weekend. So I'm very curious to see how it, re- it reacts with that. But even then, the higher end of a horror movie opening weekend is usually maybe 40 or 50 million max. Maybe even 30 million is considered a good thing for for most modern horror. And most modern horror costs maybe under 10 million dollars. So I think the important lesson to take from here is that you make a horror movie that, that costs 35 million dollars, which is you know a, a modest budget, but not but not expensive or cheap. You make a horror movie that's long and character driven. You can make a horror, a horror movie that's R-rated. And all of this can still translate to amazing box office if it's sold right and people are interested and excited. And everybody I know saw it this past weekend, not just the horror fans, the people who knew the miniseries, people who had their friends talking about it, or our own uh, Hoy Trambui, who saw it because we all recommended it to her, and even though she's not a horror fan, we said, it's a coming-of-age story, but it's also a horror movie, and, you'll, and those other elements will appeal to you. So I think in the same way how Get Out was a huge box office success earlier this year because it played the horror fans and it played the people who maybe are hesitant around the, hesitant around the genre. Uh, I feel like it's just a movie for a little bit of everybody. I think parents and kids and teenagers and young adults, it's, it's going to, it's not just a scream, scream, scream factory funhouse is a phrase coming out of my mouth for some reason. It's, <laughs> it's, it has this almost Amblin esque appeal to it. And, 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 I, and, and I, I, know was, I think that's partially it too the yeah. the success of Stranger Things, and I feel like it's in the popular culture. To we want to see more of stuff like that, and this is the thing that inspired Stranger Things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and and I, I think it's great because even though Stranger, Stranger Things, I love Stranger Things, but Stranger Things is very much a nostalgia piece, whereas it manages to evoke that feeling without being overly nostalgic. Because I know when I was on the set of the film last year. Director Andy Muschietti talked very openly about how not being an American, he has very little nostalgia for like 80s American cinema. So the fact that this movie evokes those feelings so strongly when he wasn't even going for that, I think it's a genuine compliment. And I think that translates to why it's so powerful for people because it captures those feelings without like nudging you about it. For sure. Um, we, we've been talking a lot about Star Wars Episode Nine. Obviously, Colin Trevorrow has left the production and they're searching for a new director. Everybody thought it was going to be Ryan Johnson who is directing star Wars the last Jedi, but that seems to maybe not be the case. Ben, you wrote the article for slash film.com. What do we know? Yeah. So Ryan Johnson emerged as the front runner, uh, the rumored front runner anyway. And, uh, over the, the weekend he was in Japan doing some press for the upcoming last Jedi. And there's a video of him uh, in this public press conference answering a question about whether or not he's going to direct episode nine. And I'll just read you his response here. It was never in the plan for me to direct episode nine, so I don't know what's going to happen with it. For me, I was entirely focused on episode eight and having this experience. Now I'm just thinking about putting the movie out there and seeing how audiences respond to it. So no, I'm not really thinking about that right now. Whoever does it, I'm going to be really excited to be an audience member again to sit down and see what the next filmmaker has to show us and where the story ends up going. It's so weird because the first half of that quotation sounds like he's not saying anything. He's not saying he's out of the running. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just concentrating on my movie. But then the second half kind of suggests that he's not going to be the filmmaker. He's going to be there watching it as an audience. Yeah, it does. It does seem like that. Uh, I am not fully convinced that he won't 
ultimately end up doing it. I do think that maybe as of, you know, right this second, he's not signed to do it or anything like that. Uh, I'm sure there are conversations happening behind the scenes with him and Lucasfilm um, because from all reports, everything that we've heard from the production of The Last Jedi that production went really smoothly, and Ryan Johnson is, has proven to be one of the few filmmakers who can work really, really well within the uh, Lucasfilm framework. And I have to imagine that Kathleen Kennedy and her team would want him to come back. It's just a matter of whether or not he is ultimately going to, because obviously this is a massive undertaking. Um, Jack Thorne was brought on to co-write the script for Episode Nine uh, a little while ago, a few months ago, I think. Um, but now that Colin Trevorrow is gone, it's unclear how much of the work that they've done on that script um, is going to be able to carry over for the new movie. Obviously, his vision for the project didn't align with Kennedy's vision for the project, so I can't imagine that they're going to be able to just keep most of it. They're probably going to... I don't know. There's a lot of uh, a lot of X factors there. But um, it should be noted that uh, back in July, a fan asked Ryan Johnson on Twitter if he would do another Star Wars movie, and he said, I would do another Star Wars movie in a heartbeat. I've had the time of my life. So... Um, whether or not he uh, makes the decision to jump from one immediately into presumably writing and directing another one uh, remains to be seen. But as of right now, it seems like he is, uh, yeah, definitely just concentrating on his movie for, for the time being. And there's probably some stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't fully know about. For sure. And, and we had a short list that we wrote up uh, last week on the site of directors we think could direct this movie one of them was patty jenkins uh the, the the director of wonder woman she had not yet signed on for the wonder woman sequel but today that came out that 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 deal is official she's going to be doing wonder woman too so that's another name <laughs> that will probably not be directing star wars episode 9 because of other commitments um moving on uh, a book I have never read, but I've always been fascinated with, uh, Mouse Guard, uh, is now becoming a movie. It was written by Gary Whitta, and they, it has found a director in Maze Runner filmmaker Wes Ball. Jacob, you wrote the story for the site. What do we know? I did, and as I write here, I have not read the Mouse Guard comic, which is written and illustrated by David Peterson since 2006. But I am familiar with the role-playing game that's based on it and is set in that world. And it's a really cool world. And I'm very excited. What, 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 what is oh. the premise of that world so oh. for people that don't know? Oh, the premise. Uh, take your pretty standard medieval fantasy setup, uh, except replace all human beings with mice and other rodents and other animals. And instead of fighting dragons, there are cats. And... <laughs> The whole thing, it takes, it's not like a joke. It, it takes its world and its characters very seriously. There are no humans. And, but in the same way that, you know, instead of traversing all of Middle Earth, you know, you, tra you traverse a forest, which is, to a mouse, is massive and gigantic. And, it, and like I said, having, not, not being through the comics, but being through with the world, it's just rich and detailed and it's full of fun twists on familiar things. And it, it, it's just full of iconography that's both adorable and awesome. Like, you know, mice carrying swords and shields and just i, I think had and as we reported here we're gonna be using um law of motion we're using motion capture to bring these characters to life i'm very curious to see how that looks because these characters have the potential to be like a merchandising bonanza that's a thing but also like really cool cute 
fascinating characters from just an aesthetic point of view. Uh, that's all I can really tell you about Mouse Guard, um, having not actually read it, other than having had recommended to me many, many times. But I will talk a little bit about West Ball, as he's only made three features: uh, the Maze Runner, the Maze Runner Scorch Trials, and the upcoming Maze Runner: The Death Cure, which opens next year. And I think a lot of people may underestimate him because he's only made three young adult book adaptations. But the Maze Runner is actually a really well-directed movie, and so is its sequel. I'm not even a big fan of the mythology and the storyline of those books as presented in the film, but West Ball has this attention to detail. He has great action. His characters all make sense. The dynamics all ring true on screen. When I watch The Maze Runner, I've actually watched it twice, or maybe even three times at this point because I like it, I realize that, oh, this guy is making a modestly budgeted young adult movie right now. Someone's going to scoop him up for that big $100 million action-adventure franchise. And I thought for sure it would be Lucasfilm. I thought Lucasfilm was going to get this guy to do a Star Wars spinoff at some point, but I feel like 20th Century Fox is getting ahead of the game here by hiring him. I think he's the real deal. And I think that once he's kind of cut loose from the YA trappings, we're going to see some really exciting filmmaking. Yeah, I think you might have a first-look deal over there. I know when he came out with uh, his short film, Ruin, uh, they quickly snapped up the the feature film rights to that, and that was before Maze Runner, and that, that has not gotten made yet. Um, West Ball started as kind of a visual effects guy, you know, creating CG stuff on the computer. So I think uh, it would, he's perfect for a movie like this that is going to be very a vi- very visual effects-heavy film. Um, I don't uh, uh, just like you. I don't have experience with Mouse Guard, but I do play the board game Mice and Mystics, which is uh, I would say very inspired by Mouse Guard um, in mo- in every way, and uh, I-, I love what they do. And if if Mouse Guard is anything like that, which I have heard it is, uh, it'll be something I'm going to be excited for. And is this a new genre, Peter? The idea of between this and the Lion King. Movies that are being called live action because they're using actors in motion capture, but are completely animated because they're creating animal characters. I mean, Mouse Guard has no human characters. It, it is entirely animals. Same same with how John Favreau's Lion King is going to be completely animated animals. But both are being called live action because they're striving for photorealism. Is this a new genre? Do we need a new term for this? We do need a new term for this. I mean, I, I think this kind of started with Avatar and kind of started with... Uh... The Jungle Book, the John Favreau Jungle Book. Uh, obviously, the, both of those had some live action elements to them, and we're slowly edging our way into these like uh, computer animated adult movies, essentially, right? Yeah, it feels that way. I mean, I feel like you're afraid to say they're animated because they would lose adults who don't want to go see a cartoon. But th- these are animated movies through and through. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, also in the news, uh, the passing of Len Wein, uh, the co-creator of Wolverine and Swamp Thing. Ben, you wrote the article for Slash Film. What do we know? Yes, Wein was uh, 69 years old. He passed away on Sunday. It's not clear exactly what he died from, but he I just found out he went um, underwent quintuple bypass heart surgery in 2015. So I'm guessing that might have something to do with it. It seems like a pretty intense procedure. Um yeah, Len Wein, if you are not familiar with his name, he is one of those guys who has been around in the comics industry for a long, long time. He got his first script uh, purchased from uh, DC Comics when he was 20 years old and has basically been in the industry ever since. Um, yeah, co-creator of Wolverine and Swamp Thing. And 
X-Men characters like Storm and Colossus and Nightcrawler. He co-created Lucius Fox for DC and uh, Amanda Waller from Suicide Squad. So he's got a lot of uh, major characters under his belt. Um, he, in addition to, I uh, actually started out wanting to be an artist, but transitioned into writing. And then in addition to writing for tons of comics, uh, the Teen Titans and uh, basically revitalizing the X-Men after that uh, comic sort of laid dormant for a few years. He became an editor as well and famously edited Watchmen, which is one of the most famous comics ever. Uh, he, um, Neil Gaiman sort of credits him as being the guy who brought British creators over to DC. And obviously that's a, a big thing in uh, comics history um including working with alan moore who uh, again wrote watchmen and worked on swamp thing so um yeah he was he obviously had a huge impact on um the comics culture that we know of today and then obviously um, sort of tracing that path to movie screens today um things would look a lot different on our big screens right now if len wine's contributions were uh were not there for sure. I remember um, this year at Comic-Con wandering through the Artist Alley section uh, where, you know, tons of people lined up to get autographs and get sketches from all these artists and seeing Len Wein there. It was actually very sad because he was there be uh, behind a table and I, I think no one knew who he was, even though there was a banner behind him saying, you know, the creator of Wolverine or whatever. Um, but uh, th th that's the last time I saw him. Uh Jacob, you're a big comic book reader. Do you have any memories of Len's work? I mean, it, I just find it... It's, it's, I'm sad. Of course I'm sad. Uh, 69 is too young for anyone to die in the year 2017. And I just I feel like the comic book industry has a habit of chewing up and spitting out its creators. So I'm happy to see that the outpouring of love for him. And I know he was still doing work in his final years as well, which is very uncommon for people who worked at the time that he did. And Swamp Thing is my favorite comic book character of all time. And even though he evolved greatly after Wine was done with him into a char character we kind of know today, I feel like, like a huge part of my life, my favorite superhero comic book of all time, my favorite comic book character of all time, this guy laid the roots for him, so to speak. And, that's, and you know, like... People love Wolverine and love the X-Men, but for me, he's always going to be the guy who co-created Swamp Thing, and that's really special to me. And um, it definitely, that, you know, that feeling you get in your stomach where someone you don't know dies, but you don't know how to grieve because you don't know them, that's kind of what I'm feeling right now. Um, I'm big. Can't say I was, a, can't say I, was I, I can't tell you Len Wine's life story, but I can tell you that his work does resonate with me every single day. Yeah, and it is worth mentioning that both DC and Marvel have really nice um, tribute articles up on their uh, sites right now um, devoted to Len Wein and his work. So you can go to those sites and check that out. Yes. Uh, Aaron Sorkin, uh, a famous writer and screenwriter. He did A Few Good Men, The Social Network. He makes his directorial debut with a movie called Molly's Game, which just premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. The first reviews have come out. Uh, Jacob, how is it? How is Molly's Game? Is it, is it as good as his screenwriting work? Well, I'm going to paraphrase. Actually, you know what? I'll directly quote our own Chris Evangelista, who's been at Toronto for us this year, and offered this quote. Sorkin is a better writer than director. The first half of Molly's Game has considerable more energy than the second, to the point that I start to feel like two different movies. 
Still, there's an air of excitement radiating off Molly's game, and the film ends on a truly hopeful note that will have you walking out of theater feeling like you ended a poker game with a royal flush. And that feels like a pretty good summation of the first wave of reviews, which are all positive, some are mixed, but everybody seems to say, hey, this Aaron Sorkin guy, we all knew he was a great writer. We all knew he could put great dialogue into the mouths of great actors. But he also knows a thing or two about actually telling a story or, or making a movie. And the other reviews, you hear people say things like, um, maybe a certain pacing could be off, or his camera isn't as maybe trained as you'd see from somebody who's made more features. But everybody seems really happy that Aaron Sorkin's direction is often as good as his dialogue and that his filmmaking lets that dialogue sing. And, of course, Jessica Chastain is getting rave reviews for her performance. She's a uh, former Olympian who trades in the life of athletics to become um, a poker player. And I don't heard the not, not just a poker player. She runs poker. Uh, this is based on a true story. She runs poker games for Hollywood celebrities, business tycoons, and uh, high rollers. And uh, I think this is based on a book, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a book. I, I've not read the book, which is why I'm happy you jumped in. All I know is that uh, views are good. Chris liked it, and I, I tend to think I, I like. I, if you've been covering our, if you've been reading our uh, Toronto coverage, I feel like Chris tends to have a pretty level head when he reviews movies, especially at festivals. And so, him giving a movie a mixed the positive review, I feel like will be most people's positive. So I'm pretty excited to see what this is. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on this? Because um, truth be told. I like Aaron Sorkin, but I have been following this one super closely, so I'm very curious to see what you guys think. I'm super excited for this. This is like one of those movies at Toronto that I'm really, really jealous that people have gotten to see before me. Um, that happens every year because I've never been to Toronto, and that seems to be where like ton of the uh, a ton of the big, um, you know, uh, back half of the year movies tend to debut. Um, and yeah, I'm super psyched. I mean, Idris Elba is in this as well. So as if we needed one more reason to be looking forward to this movie, he apparently does a really good job as a supporting player in there too. So, uh, yeah, I'm stoked for this one. I mean, I, I love everything that Sorkin has written thus far. I even loved, uh, studio 60 newsroom, um, some of his, uh, lesser liked work, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that he is stepping it up, becoming a director, uh, which means that we'll probably get more original stuff from him. Because, as you know, uh, when you're a, a writer director, more it's easier to get. I, I I would think that it's easier to get things made as a writer director than just a screenwriter, even on the level of Aaron Sorkin, um, because y- you know you are the champion of your own work. And uh, you, you definitely see that with other writer-directors. I don't think, uh, you know, Kevin Smith's scripts would ever have gotten made if Kevin Smith wasn't directing them. Um, and uh, so, yes, I, I'm, I'm glad because I think we're this is going to – if this is good, we're going to see more original work from Aaron Sorkin, the writer and director, and that's a good thing. Uh, Peter, it might also be worth noting that earlier this year, Aaron Sorkin said that he was uh, taking meetings with DC and Marvel Studios to potentially <laughs> write a comic book movie. So uh, I doubt very seriously that uh, Aaron Sorkin is going to be directing, you know, the next Marvel Cosmic Universe film. But uh, you never know. Stranger things have happened. Hey, Peter, pitch me your Aaron Sorkin uh, DC or Marvel movie in 10 seconds. Go. Uh... I don't know. Maybe, maybe a a movie set in the Daily Bugle newsroom. No, 
You know, I still think that there is something to be done with the Gotham City police and not in the way that the the show Gotham has done, but like a dark and gritty like tale of like being a police department in a world of supervillains and masked vigilantes. I think he could do that. Peter, have you read Gotham Central? Yes, I have. Yeah, Gotham Central, for those of you who don't know, is a comic by Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucka with pencils uh, by Michael Lark. And literally what he just said, it follows the two shifts of um, Gotham City Police Department as they live their normal lives trying to solve crimes and patrol the streets of Gotham City when they have to worry about being frozen to death by Mr. Freeze. It is spectacular. And I feel like if if (laughs) Darren Sorkin is going to make a superhero movie, put him down there with the real people so his, his dialogue can react to extraordinary things. Awesome. And now let's get into the mailbag. For this, we're going to bring on Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Brad, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, in the mailbag today, Tyler from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada asks, first I wanted to say, loving daily, blah, 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 good stuff. Yes. Uh, as you've recently dis- discussed, Force Friday 2 just passed, and I was lucky enough to grab some cool exclusives for my ever-growing Star Wars collection. My question for the mailbag is, what are some of your favorite things to collect? Figures, artwork, movie ticket stubs? Thanks for your time and keep up the great work. P.S. Will we ever get to know why Brad Omen has multiple names? The mystery intrigues me. Okay, so before we get into the real question, Brad, why do you have mystery names? Uh, I have a superhero identity. That I don't want anyone to know about. <laughs> it's, it's it's not really a great superhero. He kind of just he, he makes just sure. he, he just goes to schools and oversee and watches over over uh, students. Yeah, and then he makes sure that like there's there's good prices on stuff at the store. <laughs> That's pretty much it. No, um. So okay, so the, I I talked about this on when I was on Slash Filmcast for the first time. Uh, but just to for the people who maybe didn't hear that episode, who who missed it or anything like that, uh, and everyone who's just been so curious, uh, here's why I have the name Ethan Anderton online. Uh, back in 2009, when I first started writing online for FirstShowing.net, I was still uh, working in the industry as an intern, and I was also planning on staying in Los Angeles and getting a, a full-time job working at a production company, agency, what have you. And so uh, at the time, I still wanted to start writing online, just you know, kind of on the side as a hobby. It wasn't even a paid thing yet at that point. And so I, didn't, I wanted to do that, but also not have my real name attached to any opinions that I might have online in case somebody who was interviewing me at a studio or production company decided to Google me and then find that, uh, maybe I hated one of their movies, and they didn't want to give me a job because of that. And so by the time I was done uh, applying for jobs and I had to move back home to the to Midwest, uh, the online profile had already been established for a while. And rather than change everything over, like Twitter and all that kind of thing, I just stuck with it because it was already an established thing. And I had, you know... Uh, publicists knew me and other people and that kind of thing and it's never really been a big it's actually funny because sometimes i'll talk to publicists and i'll like mention brad and they'll be like brad and uh, they'll be like uh ethan oh ethan i love ethan 
<laughs> yeah, it's like like some people some people still don't know, but it's it's not because it's a secret. Because uh, anytime I you know meet publicists that I haven't met or reporters that I haven't met, uh, I tell them you know who I am, and they know that it's not my real name after that. So it's it's no not an identity thing anymore. It's more of just a now it's just an inconvenience to change it. And at this point, it's just it's a, a decent conversation starter. And it's just it is it is what it is. Like you know maybe I'll change it at some point, but it's. You know, then I have to change like my Twitter and uh, you know send out like new contact information and blah 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 blah. It's so. If you ever end up doing that, you gotta write a post on Slash Film titled "Why I'm Killing Ethan Anderton." <laughs> <laughs> I've murdered Ethan Anderton. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's get to the real question. That's collections. I'll start this off. Uh, I have a real problem with collecting. Uh, I, I've, I have the collecting genes in my body. I used to collect uh, mint on card uh, figures, like the Marvel figures. And when Star Wars The Phantom Menace came out, I had every single one of those figures. And, you know, I had like closets full of, you know, figures that were not being played, but just in their packages to collect that never ended up being worth money. Um, I used to collect movie tickets. Um, when I was a teenager, I had a wall of movie tickets, like just every movie t- I would see every week, I would, you know, tape it to the wall. And uh, unfortunately, one or fortunately or unfortunately, once you get into writing about movies for a living, uh, you don't get movie tickets much anymore unless you go see a movie uh, with your own money, <laughs> which it still happens. But a lot of the movies I see are at press screenings and I don't get movie tickets. So I, I do not have a movie ticket collection any longer. Um when I first went to Fantastic Fest, I want to say like nine years ago, ten years ago, I walked into the Alamo Draft House and they had these crazy illustrated, screen printed posters. It was something that like blew me away and it like changed, uh, you, you know, the way I looked at movie art. I, you know, I bought some Tyler Stouts that day. You know, they were just in a bin at uh, Mondo, which is not something that would happen nowadays. Uh, now that whole. Uh, alternate movie poster scene has blown up but uh all around my post uh, all around my house or my condo you can find these uh illustrated movie posters screen prints i have a coffee table that is a uh is a um flat file that stores all the ones that are not being hung currently i would say my favorites are eric tan's x-men which is very hard to come by and ollie Masa's star wars both of those are hanging up my place uh Sorry to make this really long, guys, but I have a collecting problem. Uh, I'm running out of space. I don't even have enough space to buy new posters, so I barely buy new posters nowadays. It has to be something good. I saw uh, Taylor's Guardians at Comic-Con. I think I was with you, Brad, and we were walking down there, and I was like, I wish I could buy that. And I ended up paying like two times the price on eBay the next week and bought it, and that's hanging up. Uh, But uh, the reason why I don't buy Funkos or Vinylmations is because I have the collector gene in me, and I have to have them all. I have to, uh, you know... uh, You're a completionist. Yeah, I'm a completionist. I, I would have to have every single one of the Star Wars collection of Funkos if I bought them. The closest thing I have to a collection now, I think... Or actually, before I said that, uh, I used to collect Yodas when I was a t- teenager. So I had uh, probably like 50 different Yoda figures, Yoda dolls, Yoda, you know, uh, animatronic, like little like toy thing. Like, I had a whole like 
section of my room that were it just got out of control it just got like it took over my room took over my life whenever i was out somewhere and i saw something yoda if it was a yoda spoon a yoda you know uh even stuff i wouldn't use i would buy it to my it have my in my yoda collection so i i just i refrain from collecting things in the in that fashion now i do have a droid shelf where i have a lot of droids including the droids from star wars iron giant um transformers and i'll add stuff to that shelf that's probably uh the biggest collection thing i i have uh actually that's not true (laughs) uh i i collect playing cards um i have a lot of playing cards i probably have hundreds of decks of playing cards it's a thing uh there's uh very uh there's it's a it's a hobby that is uh i don't know i mean i guess you can play with them I don't keep them in the in the decks, and I also have a huge board game collection. That's a hobby I started five or six years back, and I probably now have two hundred and fifty board games, which are overtaking my living room. But uh, I wouldn't call that a collection. That's more of like to have fun. Do you know what I mean? Like they're they're there for fun. That's not I'm collecting. I'm not trying to collect board games. So uh, yeah, Brad, how about you? Uh, I too have a collecting problem. <laughs> um, it's uh, I, I don't have quite as many screen prints or uh, illustrated alternate movie posters as Peter does, but over the past two or three years, I've started to get into it much more, and so I, I have a, a growing but but small collection um, of those. I'm also a this. I mean, this is like kind of cheating in a way, but I am a collector of physical media so i still am buying blu-rays because i like the physical manifestation of my movie library that people can actually see and look at and pick out something to watch if they're over and want to do so um as far as collecting collectibles i for a while it was like i had a big grab bag of stuff that i would just find stuff and every now and then i find something that catches my eye that doesn't fit in with the parameters that i tried to set for myself um, but I decided to only collect things from Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, and Star Wars. Um, and I've stuck to that for the most part, but every now and then there are some things that tickle my fancy, especially if they come out with a cool new movie line of Funko Pops. I like that. And then I also have a decent um, Lego like diorama that I'm putting together because I have the, the Movie Palace Lego set and the Ghostbusters Firehouse. And I'd like to get a couple more of the modular buildings to like have like a little half city block that's like populated by a bunch of Lego uh, movie characters. I don't just mean characters from the Lego movie, but as in the Lego versions of characters from movies. Um, and then uh, just in the past couple years, I also started collecting vinyl. Uh, so I've been really interested in all of the offerings that Mondo has come out with and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's I think that about covers it about you ben um i don't really collect much uh, i think posters is probably the closest thing that i would have to like a full-on collection um i'm gonna run through the few posters that i have in my office right now that are up on the walls just to give you guys an idea i have martin anson's game of thrones i have uh, laurent Duro's uh, raiders of the lost ark uh print uh joshua budich's anchorman i have uh, reese cooper's jesse pinkman from breaking bad and then um Mark Englert's uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, those are up on my walls right now. Um, 
yeah, I don't really have, I have a ton of posters like under my bed in flat files and like rolled up in, in, uh, yeah, poster tubes and stuff like that. Just the things that I don't have room for on my walls. Um, one thing that actually is kind of cool that is underneath my bed is a full framed poster of the original Tomb Raider, the movie that I've never seen, but because it's signed by Angelina <laughs> Jolie, I have it underneath my bed. And I, I got that when I was working at Paramount. They had a back room with just like a bunch of random crap in it. And they I was working as like a tour guide and they were like, all right, all of you can just go in and grab one thing and take it home with you. And I just grabbed that because that was the coolest thing in that room. So, uh, so yeah, I think post is probably the uh, the closest I have to a, a collection, but I certainly am nowhere near approaching um, the levels of uh, of fandom and sort of uh, devotion that you guys are. Yeah, I, I've been asked many times to give a video tour of my my Screenbird collection. Maybe someday I, I will do that, but I, uh, it's still gr- I, I'm, I'm not done. It's not done. <laughs> uh, Jacob, how about you? I know you have a, a, a print collection as well. I do. Living in Austin makes it very easy to collect Mondo. I go to all the gallery shows. I go to all Rub the it in, screenings. Jacob. Rub it in. <laughs> I go to MondoCon, Brad. <laughs> um, so I'm not, I'm not going to try to um, double up on the things that have already been mentioned. Yeah, I collect screen prints. I have a lot from Mondo and Baldmet Gallery and all the usual suspects. I have a lot of Blu-rays. I have hundreds of board games, which are literally we had to... We, when we, my wife and I bought a new house moving into later this month. We had this. We had to kind of figure out: is there room for the board games in this house? That was an actual conversation we had to have. But how, how many I've, board games do you have, Jacob? I'm just wondering. Over three hundred now. Uh, I haven't done an actual count. I ran out of space in my shelves. The rest of them are currently stacked in a corner. We're buying new shelves for the new house, so I need to figure that out. <laughs> but uh, I buy comics every week, so I have a bunch of long boxes stored away in my closet. Uh, I one time said, I'm going to start buying the Game of Thrones Funko Pops. And then I, about maybe 40 or so Game of Thrones Funko Pops later, I realized that they're never going to stop. So I've stopped with those for now. Um, I, I, and also book, books, books or, or comics collected. I tend to visit a lot of used bookstores in my free time. And as part of the current move, I have about 75 boxes worth of books packed up and ready for the movers. It's a, it's a, it's a problem. Honestly, the one thing I haven't. Ho- ho- hopefully, they built a library for you in your new uh, new house that you're moving to. You said seventy five boxes of books. Roughly, possibly more. Oh my god, that's a lot. It, it is a lot, and like I said, it, I love being surrounded by books in in my office where I work. Um, I have bookshelves circling me all around, and I love to be able to be surrounded by that. And a number of times where I'm writing an article, and I say, oh. That reminds me of something I should look up. I can literally go stand up, pull a book off my shelf, and find something I want to reference. Yeah, Wikipedia does the same thing, but I prefer this. I, it, it makes me feel good. It, it, it's an experience I enjoy. I guess the, the short version of this is, talk about things I don't collect. I don't collect vinyl. I flirted with it and then realized, no, I can't go down this rabbit hole. So I, I, have, I have some vinyl, but not much in terms of um, music. Most music is still digital. And I'm currently in a flirtation with collecting statues, um, only a few of them right now, uh, encouraged by Comic-Con and, but it, it's, it's, it's tricky because when you collect this many things, you got to kind of pick and choose what you buy because you got to be a responsible adult and all that. Like I bought a 14 inch or so Swamp Thing statue to bring back Swamp Thing from earlier. And right now I'm in negotiations with my wife as to where he'll live in the new house because, <laughs> uh, I would very much like my Swamp Thing to be on display, um, in the living room. 
But she says, no, that's a space where my parents will be regularly being. And I don't want my parents to look at that swamp thing all day. So he'll probably end up living in my office. And, you know, adults adults have to make these decisions about where they put their swamp things. So <laughs> That's uh, it. It's funny how our the thing. I mean, Fight Club says that the things that we own end up owning us, and uh, it, it, a lot of the time. I mean, a lot of my life has been trying to let go of that. I used to have a DVD collection that was nearing three thousand DVDs at its height, and now I probably have a drawer of Blu-rays that are in sleeves. Um, I've gone all digital. I've I'm trying to minimalize, although the board game obsession is pushing that. Uh, there's no way to really minimize uh, a hobby that is a a you know a thing that you need to have a physical copy of. So mm-hmm. yeah. So in addition to uh, the stuff that I collect here at my home, soon I will be at school collecting homework and papers and all that jazz from students. Because I am getting ready to embark on the final part of a transition to teaching program that I began about a year and a half. No, like roughly a year ago, I think. Um, at, at the time, that before I had started joining the Slash Film team, I was thinking about a career change. And the only thing I saw myself being passionate about was uh, teaching something like English uh, to, at uh, like the high school level or college level. And so I started with with high school and joined a transition to teaching program that was streamlined at a nearby college. And so I've already taken all the classes that I need. Now I just have to do the student teaching. And that begins this fall. I had my first day on Monday, September 11th. And the first week is all observation. And then I slowly start taking over the classes. I'm going to have three 12th grade English classes, a journalism class. And then I'll also be overseeing yearbook and the high school newspaper. And I'll be, the cool thing is I'll be getting paid for part of it because I'll be taking over as a permanent sub for the teacher that I'll be working with because she'll be going on maternity leave in October. So I'm very anxious but also excited uh, and nervous and all these different things. So it's going to be a big change. And so, But I'm not leaving well, Slash Film. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, does this mean you're leaving us, Brad? What's no, going on? You, you know this. Uh, <laughs> I, I had to play it up for the the listeners <laughs> uh it wouldn't be funny if i was just announcing it just now <laughs> but no i'm not leaving slash film i will be doing a little bit less on the news front uh just because i'll be busy during the day at school and we'll, we'll have my hands full with what is essentially a, a, another full-time job but uh, both peter and jacob were kind enough to accommodate my schedule and work with me so that i could finish this and be- become a licensed teacher so that i have a, a nice fallback career you know, uh, should the time come when the internet doesn't need movie bloggers anymore? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so it's I, I will be a, a little bit MIA as far as not appearing on the podcast as much and not doing as much news during the day. But you'll still see stuff written by me here and there, and I'll still be doing my stuff on the weekend. So it, it won't be completely without Ethan Anderton. I'm sure that will be a disappointment for some people out there, uh, but I'm I'm sorry, you're still stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we, we should also mention that we're bringing on a new writer. This is completely unrelated to this uh, events that you mentioned, Brad. But, uh, J- Jacob, do you want to make the announcement? Yeah, I, I will. Um, like I said, this is not related to Brad. Uh, this is Brad will, when Brad's done teaching, he's going to come back to his full capacity, which is bringing on another full time staff member in addition to him. And that he's got, I mentioned earlier, we're bringing on Chris Evangelista, who's been one of our most regular freelancers for the past six months or so. He's 
we've always been impressed by his feature content for us. He does really great spoiler reviews. He whips up really good editorials and lists. And so in addition to all that, he'll also be on the news desk uh, starting next week. And he's a joy to work with. He's an awesome writer. And I am I'm eager to be working with him every single day. He's he's a treat to edit and a treat to read. And just like all the Slash Film staff, he will probably be appearing on this podcast at some point. So uh, you'll be hearing him uh at, 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 at some point in the future, probably next week or the, the week after. Um, but that does it for today's edition of Slash Film Daily. Uh, to submit questions to the mailbag, send them to peter at slashfilm.com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention them on the air. You can find more of Ben at Ben Pears on Twitter, Jacob at Jacob S. Hall on Twitter. You can find Brad at Ethan underscore Anderton. And now you know the story on Twitter. Uh, also, go flick yourself on iTunes. You can find me at Slash Film on Twitter. Uh, you can find more of all the stories we mentioned on today's podcast at SlashFilm.com. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and television as well as deeper dives into the great features from SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please do. Please uh, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. Help us out. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.